They would come back to that kind of manifest of what sort of Ireland do you envisage a United Ireland being? That would then have to then drive whatever changes would be felt are things that absolutely need to be done and maybe things that would be nicer to be different. And you would have to categorise it that way, put the focus on getting the stuff that needs to be done now done. I mean, we've we've had a history of constitutional reform bodies being set up in Ireland, you know, since the early 80s on constitutional reform of what would need to be done with the Northern Ireland issue. And therefore, we have a history of this. But I would be one of those people who would say that the Constitution is your emergency stop valve. Hello, and welcome to this month's Aaron's podcast. I'm Rory Montgomery. Our subject this week uh, is the whole question of the processes which would need to be put in place before referendums on United Ireland, North and South. And I'm very glad that we're joined by the author of a recent article in the Aaron series in Irish Studies and International Affairs, uh, Professor Colin Harvey, who's Professor of Human Rights Law uh, at Queen's University Belfast. And his article is called Let the People Decide. The people are in inverted commas. Maybe he'll say why later on. Let the people decide Reflections on Constitutional Change and Concurrent Consent, also in inverted commas. But you can read the article uh, and, uh, and, and and see it for yourselves. And again, one of the features of Aaron's, as listeners will know, is that every article is accompanied by at least one comment. Uh, and on this occasion, in fact, there are two comments, one by Colin Mukaneda. But we're joined today by the author of the other comment, uh, Jennifer Kavanagh, uh, who lectures in constitutional law at the Waterford Institute of Technology. And you're very welcome indeed, both Colin uh, and Jennifer. Um, now, maybe, Colin, um, as I say, we're talking today very much about process rather than about substance. Uh, but maybe you might lead off by giving us an overview uh, of what you say in your article. Thank you very much, Rory. And just to note that I very much appreciate the invitation to talk to you both today. Uh, appreciate the invitation to write the article and also to be involved in the Aaron's project. I think it's a very significant initiative with a lot that has already been con contributed and a lot more to come. If it's helpful, I'll just provide an overview of the paper. Obviously, people can read it for themselves. And I very much appreciate it as well, the format of this, of getting responses to the paper too. Essentially, it's about, with other people, normalizing or attempt to normalize the constitutional conversation around this aspect of the Good Friday Agreement. To think about why people are talking about Irish reunification at the current time, and I think listeners will will know that scarcely a, a day goes by without another significant intervention in this public debate. It's really quite remarkable. And obviously in the article, the impact of Brexit in relation to that is noted. What the article then does is sketch my own view of the framework uh, and how this will operate, anchored very much in the Good Friday Agreement. The constitutional issues section there is outlined. And what I try and do is make clear what that requires and the guarantees that are already there in terms of the Good Friday Agreement framework. The principle of consent, 
the nature of the right of self-determination that's there, the guarantees in relation to citizenship, for example, and including where the McCord judgment from the Northern Ireland Court of Appeal now takes this debate. There's then a number of themes explored and mainstreaming the debate linked to, to normalising this conversation. We may, we may talk about why that remains work in progress. Uh, British constitutionalism in Northern Ireland, the paper expresses some worries about whether the constitutional significance of what has happened here is still properly absorbed into the British constitutional legal framework and the problems that might arise down the road in relation to that. Um, and there's reasons to doubt that it is. Uh, you, you'll note from my paper uh, and from other work that I've done is that there's a sort of consistent theme of preparation and planning. Uh, there's a big, a strong focus on the paper on advanced planning before these referendums take place. I then sketch how the process itself will be managed. That doesn't deal with, the article doesn't deal with every single aspect of the process, but it sketches a few of concern. Uh, I raise a question about an internal UK approach and a theme noted at a few points in the article is whether uh, international agreed British-Irish oversight around the implementation and monitoring of all this might be helpful. Might we need some international help? And international oversight has proved quite helpful in the past in relation to the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Then talks about the question of who will be eligible to vote, which links back to your earlier question, Rory, about who do we mean when we talk about the people. The agreement talks about the right of self-determination belonging to the people of the island of Ireland and the issue of concurrent consent. But at the moment, that question of eligibility to vote is an intriguing one, you know, as to who, who exactly we're talking about. Then what the question will be, again, linking back to the Good Friday Agreement on this, I think it's highly unlikely that the question posed will depart in any significant way from the language of the Good Friday Agreement itself. And that rather suggests a fairly binary choice uh, between a united Ireland and uh, remaining in the union with Britain. Uh, then there's reference to concurrent consent and measuring the outcome. The, my view in the article, which we can talk about, is that concurrent consent is required. I'll say a bit more about that perhaps later on. The debate around measuring the outcome, you, you'll all be aware and the listeners will be aware that there's some discussion about the 50 plus one uh, element of that. And I, in a sense, make clear that it is 50 plus one. Uh, in a sense, north and south, and, and actually in the article and elsewhere, I thought you know the focus of the debate needs to be not on changing uh, the rules around that, but on thinking about the guarantees and assurances that are there. So just as a final point by way of overview, if there's an overarching theme in the article, it's that the people of the island of Ireland have this right of self-determination, that what we're essentially talking about now and universities and civil society have an important role in this, is, is simply preparing in a proper, responsible, respectful way, a way that avoids some of the challenges we've seen in relation to Brexit, to permit people on the island of Ireland to exercise an existing Good Friday Agreement right, in a sense that we move beyond simply talking about the constitutional question in the abstract, and that we actually ask people the constitutional question, we allow them to answer it, and we make as clear as we can in advance of the process uh, what the consequences of answering the question either way will be.
Just thank you very much for the chance to just introduce the paper. Colin, there are those who would argue that um, the discussion um, about timing and the suggestion that referendums are in fact uh, likely in, in the reasonably near future perhaps is premature and that it you know, causes maybe unnecessary tensions um, in Northern Ireland and in political discussion there. And they will point in some cases uh, to recent opinion polls and surveys which suggest that you're still quite a long way, one is still quite a long way from meeting the, uh, the threshold which would require the Secretary of State to hold a referendum. Um, what would you say to that? Again, I would start and end really with the Good Friday Agreement. Um, the, the main constitutional options here are intended to be equally legitimate. And it's well beyond time, whether in universities or civil society, wider public debate, that we began behaving as if that was true. Um, and I think, you know, the reaction to some of this has been quite remarkable. That What we're talking about here is planning and preparing in a responsible and sensible way for an outcome that is anticipated in the Good Friday Agreement in a context where these aspirations are supposed to be equally legitimate. But maybe if I strike a personal note in relation to that, sometimes it doesn't feel like that uh, when you live here. So I think you know it's about the Good Friday Agreement and it's about respecting the principles that are there. And you'll know, Rory and Jennifer, you'll know as well that people have gone to great lengths to use responsible language around this. And certainly post-Brexit, when we are now talking about an option for re-entry to the European Union and we have the endless discussions about the protocol, it would actually strike me as slightly bizarre if we weren't talking about this now in a, in a sort of focused way. And of course, in another paper of a couple of years ago, you did talk very much about United Ireland in the context of re-entry to the European Union on the part of Northern Ireland. You major quite a lot in the paper um, on the concept of concurrent consent, um, which is, of course, um, in the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and as others, including myself, have, have noted, um, the definition of concurrent, um, a precise definition of concurrent, is is absent um, from the Good Friday Agreement. And there are those who would argue that it means, in fact, simultaneous referendums north and south, as was the case with the Good Friday Agreement itself on the 22nd of May, 1998, and there are others who will say, well, actually, you could have quite a gap between the two as long as the essential conditions are are unchanged. I mean, maybe you might unpack the, the notion of concurrence a bit. Thank you very much, Rory. And again, great uh, live question at the moment. In my view has been very clear. I think they are concurrent referendums. And what I mean by that is that they're, they're simultaneous. And let me just press that a bit further, that you know, we're talking about the British-Irish agreement and the language of the British-Irish agreement to be interpreted, you know, in line with the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. And if you read the relevant paragraph and you, you a good faith interpretation of the ordinary meaning of the terms there, um, you know, viewed in context with object and purpose, I think it's hard to get around the conclusion that the language there requires, as a matter of international obligation, concurrent referendums. The ordinary meaning of concurrent in many dictionaries I've looked at is at the same time. That's the language that you use. So you know, my, my conclusion is that a good faith reading 
of the terms of the Good Friday Agreement as both a multi-party agreement and an international legal agreement as well, based on established principles of interpretation, actually requires these to be concurrent. Also, of course, in terms of context, the background to this is an agreement that itself, that was itself, you know, approved by concurrent referendums on the same day, on the 22nd of May, 1998. Now, I'm very, very conscious that some people don't agree with that conclusion, but I think both as a matter of law, but also a matter of principle to ensure that the outcome that is achieved enjoys, you know, quite substantial and robust legitimacy, north and south, where people are clear what they're voting for in both bits of the island. I think, you know, that to me is the best reading of the current provisions in the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, Jennifer, I think you wanted to say a word there. Yeah, I mean, even if you just look at the technicalities of <clears throat> when we eventually may have such a referendum, how would you actually manage having a referendum on two different days when the North may know the answer that Ireland has given or vice versa? And I mean, there, there's media consumed but on both sides of the border simultaneously. It would just be impossible to even manage a referendum like that from a, a disinformation or just electoral fairness on who's getting on the airwaves. So uh, the whole practicalities of just having a concurrent referendum would mean it would be the same day. Yeah, as as you say, Colin, I mean, there are those who take a different view and people like Oren Doyle um, and the authors of the University College London uh, study. I mean, my own personal view is, is closer to your own, I must say, um, as someone who was involved in the negotiation of the Good Friday Agreement. I mean, this was one of the many topics which could have benefited from being more thoroughly discussed at the time. But I think that the um, the example of the simultaneous referendums um, in April 98 or in May 98, which we were committing in April 98, would have been very much in people's minds um, at the at the time. Um, Jennifer, uh, back to you. One of the themes of the paper uh, is the need to provide the maximum amount of detail uh, to members of the public or to the public's north and south uh, before votes. How much detail do you think is necessary in advance or will be necessary in advance and how much will be possible in advance? Well, I think a very good example to look at for that would be the heads of bill that were produced before the repeal the 8th referendum. So people had an idea they knew it wasn't going to be set in stone. But if you're looking at any referendum for a united Ireland, it's with Brexit and with the way the demographic change has happened, you have the post-Good Friday babies who really don't care one side or the other on different colours. What they will be looking at is, well, if I'm going to lose the NHS to come down to the HSE, Sloan to Care, what way will housing operate, economy? They're the things that will have to be sketched out. And in a way, it is an example of how the political discourse on this question has evolved in the North. It's no longer just which side did did your family feel like they were in connection with, down to the brass tacks of, well, what's my life going to look like if there is a united Ireland? Do I want to be looking at trolley waiting lists or do I want my NHS? And they are the kind of things that, will be the deciding factor at the end of the day because the people who've already, shall we say, attached their colours to certain mass, they're probably going to stay where they are. But it's always with, with any election or anything, it's those people in the middle who, at the moment, they they feel grand. It's working the way it's working, don't particularly like Brexit or whatever their position is on that. It's going to be the realities of the day-to-day, -day, what their lives will look like. 
Um, Colin, I mean, one of the, the points which you address in, in the paper, but which I think is worth looking at a bit further, um, is this whole problem um, of an absence or a likely absence of pre-referendum engagement by a large section um, of the community in Northern Ireland, uh, unionists and, and maybe others who are pro-union. Um, and to what extent is it actually possible uh, to frame detailed proposals without uh, meaningful input from, from them? Again, again it's, a, it's a great great, great question, Rory. I think I've probably spent too much of my life in managerial roles because I realise that in a lot of the, the papers and work that I've done is stress sort of quite intense advanced planning, including intergovernmental planning before that. Like my view is that I think United Irelanders are great procrastinators. Let me explain that. In that, while it's a widespread aspiration across the island of Ireland, doing the hard work um, to actually spell out what the future might look like seems to be consistently avoided. And I, you know, my view increasingly is that those there's a sort of muddle in the conversation. Um, political unionism, by and large, will be primarily engaged in defending the union and making the case for the union. Those who want change, there's an onus on those who want change to actually build the case for change in a way that is setting out design options that are as open and inclusive as possible. And there's a warm invitation to people to uh, participate in that. But I think waiting for particularly political unionism to join that conversation or even expecting political unionism to design a united Ireland, I think, um, you know, gets into issues of mutual respect in the agreement as well, because political unionism will be engaged in that other project. I don't think, however, that's a reason for those who are advocating change to develop something that's going to look like a new Ireland manifesto. You might even call it Ireland's future, the document, uh, sort of replicating Scotland, um, that contains significant detail. And, you know, we know that there are also ways to garner uh, views from across society here uh, that involve academic research, opinion polling, focus groups, to get a sense from people in the unionist community here uh, in civic society here is that what would be required or what would be necessary to increase the comfort of unionists and loyalists in in a united Ireland. So, you know, you don't need the DUP to show up at a citizens' assembly or it'll be citizens, it'll be civic participation. I think you'll be surprised that the people who participate in that from Northern Ireland, actually, from across civic society here, I have my doubts that political unionism will engage in advance, but I don't think that's a reason for not getting on with setting out an attractive, inclusive, persuasive manifesto for what a new Ireland will look like and proposals to be put to a referendum. Uh, that manifesto also, you know, there may be things that we can, uh, that can be included in that document in advance substantively, but that document may also include a number of procedural mechanisms for afterwards as well, so that maybe people who didn't feel comfortable engaging before the referendums, uh, after the referendums, if there is a vote for change, 
processes can put in place to 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 include people at that stage. For example, uh, I've been quite struck, and Jennifer, I think it's been interesting as well from a constitutional perspective. How many people in conversations have immediately gone to the idea of a new constitution? You know, as part of this conversation. So there's interesting questions around that, um, as to how that's drafted, uh, at what stage that's drafted, and things. So as much inclusion as you can in advance. But I think a starting end where I started, those who want change need to stop essentially procrastinating on the hard work. There's been too much sort of abstract thinking. It needs to get a bit more detailed. Cards need to be put on the table and the work needs to be done. And that'll look like a manifesto, a prospectus, a set of propositions as to what the future might look like. I mean, just uh, I'll turn to Jennifer in a second about the question of constitutional change in the Republic. Um, but uh, I've often thought myself that maybe different kinds of issue will lend themselves to differing amounts of precision and, and prescriptiveness. You know, there are some questions such as, for example, the continuation or not um, of a devolved um, administration in Northern Ireland, which can probably only really be resolved with the participation of pretty well everybody in Northern Ireland both communities and there are other issues like rights and so on, which probably can be more easily resolved um, in advance. Jennifer, yes, on this question um, of a of constitutional change in the Republic, um, I mean, there are those who would argue that any referendum question should be essentially either you know minimalist in that respect or, or just permissive, I mean, in terms of setting out things which might be done thereafter. And then there are others who say we should have a you know an entirely new document put to the people and Colin expresses some concern about that on the basis that there's a danger of overloading the process um, with debates on all sorts of issues which you know will be important in the future but are, which aren't strictly speaking you know directly germane to the to, to, to the question I mean wh- what's your own sense of that well it pretty much comes down to philosophically where do you stand and what does a constitution do So you have one camp that would say a constitution is the basic rules on how your state functions, the emergency stop valve on any branch of government trying to take over and do their own thing. But the other side is that a constitution to some people also encapsulates statements on the way you view society running. So, for example, if you were to look at the woman in the home provision that is currently up for debate in the constitution, that was giving a clear signal on socially, culturally, economically, where we saw the structure of Irish society being. So you have things in the constitution like what the Irish flag is, and that is a question that is up for debate. That if there was to be a United Ireland, is it a case that the flag that we currently have is no longer suitable? Even though if you go back to Thomas Francis Marr himself, it is the peace between the nationalists and the and the loyalists. So it is still passing that test of it does what it says in the tin but it is something that is actually found in the constitution so there are certain bits that would need to be changed so for example articles two and three would have to be revisited because in that they are saying that you know it is the ideal and intention that Ireland would be reunified and will be expressed by democratic vote if that's done it's gone it would have to go anyway So there are certain things that would need to be part of a referendum one way or the other. But then again, it would come back to that kind of manifest of what sort of Ireland do you envisage a United Ireland being? That would then have to then drive 
whatever changes would be felt are things that absolutely need to be done and maybe things that would be nicer to be different. And you would have to categorise it that way, put the focus on getting the stuff that needs to be done now done. And then later on, maybe through, I mean, we've we've had a history of constitutional reform bodies being set up in Ireland, you know, since the early 80s on constitutional reform and what would need to be done with the Northern Ireland issue. And therefore, we have a history of this. But I would be one of those people who would say that the Constitution is your emergency stop valve. It should be there for your times of absolute peril. Like at the moment, every second week, there is an issue with the Constitution and something that is a constitutional, not that we have a constitutional crisis, but people couch it in that sort of language. So, I mean, people have a list of things they want amended with the Constitution. We have things that we need to do anyway. Uh, the North is one of those issues that, that would be there. But as I say, it would come down to what is the overall perspective of the Irish Constitution? Is it that emergency stop valve? Is it that grand statement on Irish culture, organisation of society, etc.? And then you leave that drive the rest of the process. I mean, Colin, that brings us on to this interesting question of timings before and after a referendum. I mean, first of all, um, I mean, again, it's, it's been discussed by, by some others, including in UCL, this question of the a gap, and if so, how long a gap between a decision to hold um, referendums north and south and the actual holding of them on the basis that the mines will be concentrated, do you you know do you think that's appropriate? And if so, what kind of gap? And secondly, then afterwards, I mean, to take the constitutional question, I mean, yes, uh, you know, there may be things which would need to be done instantly, but you would think that certainly, in principle, that everybody um, on the island, including indeed those identifying as British on the island in the United Ireland, would need to be able to take part in a, in, a, in, a, in a more comprehensive constitutional change. So that would seem to suggest an amount of time afterwards as as well. I mean, what's your view on these timing questions? Two things, really. On the, 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 the first one, in terms of a time frame, I've been fairly clear for a while now I'm in favour of a time frame. I know people don't necessarily always agree with that, but... Um, I think a time frame is essential. I'm also conscious of the provisions of the Northern Ireland Act and just how much flexibility the Secretary of State has had. But I'm strongly in favour of a fairly, fairly robustly intergovernmentally managed process um, that would have a defined time frame uh, whereby both governments ag agreed that before a certain date, uh, these concurrent referendums will be held. I think ultimately, I think the parameters that could be sketched out in something like a joint declaration or a framework document. Uh, obviously, the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference is a way to do that, because at the moment, you know, we're just endlessly talking about some of this, and, and I think the only way to focus minds sometimes is a time frame. Like I've said it before, how much homework would get done in the island of Ireland if there was no time frame? And I think, you know, we just have to prepare the ground, manage it sensibly, and set out a framework. Obviously, relationships be between both governments at the moment aren't at their, their best, let's say. So people might be slightly sceptical about aspects of that. But I think anything that's gone forward here uh, has generally been preceded by British-Irish framework for sketching the parameters of what 
uh, it will mean. And I think that would be very helpful. The British Irish Intergovernmental Conference, other things are there to, to do that. So I think a joint declaration or something like that. The second question is about, you know, what's been really encouraging about the discussion so far is just the point you've made about civic engagement, that many of the groups and much of the work has emphasised the need for participation of people on the island of Ireland, either before or afterwards. So wherever you stand in relation to how much happens before or how much happens afterwards, I think it's absolutely essential that civic participation is there. You know, people talk about co-design and all this stuff and that, but I think it is absolutely vital. And rather than sort of academics, like me and others descend from on high and literally in the law school of queens we have a tower to descend from um, and provide a sort of framework i would rather see some of that emerge organically with a genuine open mind uh, to be changed listening to people and re in answer to your question you're right you know there is thinking about about this a bit more there may be people who don't join the conversation beforehand who will only join the conversation afterwards once a referendum on this has, let's say, opted for a reunified Ireland. And, you know, it may be that, for example, if you are interested in a new constitution, would it really be possible to get that done in advance of the referendums? Or would your manifesto for a new Ireland contain something like, you know, recommendations on a People's Assembly, Citizens' Assembly, Constitutional Convention? afterwards looking at some models around the world to to do this i suppose fi finally you know what that says to me i know we started with sort of questions around anxiety and worry and there's an aspect of this discussion that that should be genuinely energizing and uh, exciting as well because we're we're living in a period of time where you know how, how often do you get to sketch out design participate in thinking about the future of you know, your country in this way. So I think it's also, you know, there's a lot of positives in this too. Yeah, well, naturally, as a, a former official of the Irish government, um, you know, I would very much concur with your view that it's really when the British and Irish governments work together uh, that, you know, the really difficult issues can be taken forward and, and advanced and that there is a, you know, a role for certainly for, for governments and, 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 and their officials in, in all of this. That brings me on to the, the difficult question of the role of the British government. Um, and of course, it's it's been in the news recently um, with this discussion uh, over, you know, sparked by Louise Hay, uh, until recently the Northern Ireland spokesperson of the Labour Party, um, about the role of the uh, British government uh, in a referendum in, in terms of advocating a particular outcome or or not. So perhaps, Colin, you might say a little bit about two things. I mean, first of all, and you alluded to it earlier, the, the role of the Secretary of State in actually deciding upon the holding of a referendum and, and you know, what constraints are or are not uh, upon him or her. But then secondly, the question of what role the British government um, could or should play uh, in a referendum. Uh, and Jennifer, afterwards, I'll come back to you and just maybe to talk about a little bit about what you think the Irish government and qua Irish government might be might be doing in the same period. Again, thank, thanks again. You know, great question. Starting point is the Good Friday Agreement, in terms of the framing uh, of this. But obviously, the Northern Ireland Act, uh, read with the Good Friday Agreement, sets out the parameters. It's perhaps one of the most intriguing aspects of this whole arrangement 
that a right that belongs to the people of the island of Ireland, the, the exercise of which could lead to very fundamental change, is ultimately triggered by you know, the British government, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. And the McCord judgment, Court of Appeal judgment here, has been fairly clear the extent of the flexibility that the Secretary of State enjoys in relation to the specifically legal framework around that. Now, many you know political scientists and people like yourself, Rory, will say, well, ultimately, there's the law around this and then there's the politics of it as to what will determine things. But I'm very conscious that the British government could essentially take this step at any time. There's a discretion to do this whenever they like, essentially, but there's also a duty to do this in certain circumstances when it appears likely. And as you both know, there's an endless discussion here as to when that test will be met and what sort of evidence you, you would use for that. So I am conscious in this preparatory work that th there is an element of urgency about it because there's a rather unpredictable government in London. So you would want to be uh, well prepared for eventualities. Um, what's not noted about McCord that needs to be talked about a bit more, which came up again this week in relation to rigorous impartiality or last few weeks, is that McCord had interesting things to say about the role of the rigorous impartiality obligation and the nature of the right to self-determination, that judgment. A lot of focus on, on that judgment has been on the flexibility element, but perhaps not as much as there should be around uh, the way the court used rigorous impartiality and the nature of the right. And I think that will considerably constrain any British government leading this process so, for example, could you really have a Secretary of State who had a sort of proselytising role around the Union, who was also managing this process in a way that was seen to be entirely fair, impartial and rigorously so? Um, I also think, in terms of my own view, like uh, some people have said, well, the British government will only get into negotiations afterwards. I think a proper reading of the rigorous impartiality obligation actually as a matter of obligation, requires the British government to put their cards on the table in advance of the referendums. Um, a failure to do that by the British government means it's not behaving impartially with respect to both aspirations in relation to Northern Ireland. So I think we need a bit more work and thought as to what the obligation of rigorous impartiality positively requires of the British government during this process, if it's to be a, an honest broker in the process and given the nature of the right. So that's that's the British government uh, and the obligations around that. In terms of the, um, maybe say something about parliament. You know, one thing- Please, yeah, I if you would, need, yeah. yeah. I, I don't need to tell either of you this, but obviously the legislative supremacy of the Westminster parliament remains a core principle of UK constitutional law. And the reason I mention that is that, you know, no British government ultimately can guarantee whether Parliament will go along with what it actually wants. Uh, no British government can absolutely copper fasten uh, any agreement into the future as well, if you take a particular reading of that concept of legislative supremacy. And the numbers, as we've seen in recent years in the House of Commons, can vary wildly in terms of the governmental position. So. People thinking about this need to keep an eye on the British government, but also the Westminster Parliament as well. The, uh, significant legislation around this is going to go through Westminster, you know, 
and legislation can have a a, a rocky road through that parliament uh, and and you know so that's something to to watch and just a final point on that i don't need to tell anybody again listen to this or hear that british irish governments will inevitably you know, there'll be agreement an agreement or agreements around these processes but again what what matters in in uk constitutional law ultimately is how that is incorporated into domestic law the role of the westminster parliament and the role of legislation and I think something that people need to keep in mind is the question of enforceability into the future. Just to give you a practical example, you know, an Irish government in the United Ireland can't grant British citizenship to, you know, uh, those who want to identify as British only. That will depend on the citizenship and nationality laws of, you know, the Westminster Parliament, the British government going forward. And so everyone has a, a strong interest in ensuring that whatever is adopted is enforceable. Um, because just to repeat the point, you know, an Irish government cannot essentially grant British citizenship mm -hmm. to British citizens born in a United Ireland. And who knows what a future Westminster Parliament might decide to do. So keeping an eye on the sort of basics of UK constitutional law is also quite important, I think. No, that's very you know, a series of very good points and interesting points there. I mean, just by way of illustration, of I think of the difficulty of clarity in advance. Come, you come to the question of the the subvention, and we had a we had a good podcast discussion about this between John Doyle and John Fitzgerald um, not so long ago, and of course, you know what the attitude the British government would take to its you know, to payment of pensions to Northern Ireland's share of the British debt. You know, could have a very considerable impact, you know, one way or the other, uh, on the size of the subvention. As of course, could the Irish government's approach uh, to increasing Northern Ireland public service salaries and welfare payments to levels which attain in the Republic. And again, it's interesting. I mean, is it realistic to expect there to be agreement on these matters in advance, when of course that could be seen as. Uh, as, as tipping the scale one way or another, but that's a that's a matter for another another maybe day. Maybe Rory, no, I come come back on that. You know, j just to be clear, what I'm saying, and I, and I want, I, I do want to put this out there. Um, what I'm saying is, as a matter of legal obligation, yes, uh, under the British Irish Agreement, my view is that the rigorous impartiality obligation, if it's respected, requires the British government to put its cards on the table as a matter of obligation, not of discretion or whether it wants to or not in advance. Otherwise, it's not treating the two relevant options uh, in an equal way, in my view. Yeah. Uh, Jennifer, just to, b briefly, because I'm conscious of time in this, the, the role of the Irish government in, in all of this, because of course, I, I was involved in the referendum in 98 myself, and we were in this rather odd position, whereby despite overwhelming political support, and as it turned out, public support for the Good Friday Agreement, uh, the government at the time had to, you know, as always, tread this very fine line of behaving in an absolutely neutral and impartial way in the organisation of the referendum and in terms of the provision of public information and so on, while at the same time the parties were free to do what they what they wished. And I've often thought in the British case too, is there a possible distinction between the government and, and the parties? But do you, to what extent do you see the Irish government as being in any way constrained by by our own domestic practice? Well, there will still be the, the restraints from the McKenna case, whereby the government cannot be seeking to advocate for one side over the other, whether it's divorce, children's rights or 
any question on a united ireland so that governmental restraint will have to be there hopefully by the time there is any um referendum that we would actually have an electoral commission set up it is something that is currently working its way very slowly through the political system but they would have more of a role in in say giving out information um you know just the the basic nuts and bolts of any electoral or referendum process would be uh managed in a more cohesive manner because the provisions of the electoral reform bill means that the referendum commission would no longer just be set up per referendum for a small piece of time that would be there running away in the background and constantly being able to look at those you know those governmental issues and the the nuts and bolts uh, of what would be going on as well as that they would have a better role in any information that would be say disinformation that would be going up online political advertising it it is something that is an issue with all referendums all elections and I would doubt that anything would be different in fact there might be larger issues if it was to be a, a United Ireland vote so yes the parties would be as parties able to campaign away as they normally do in any referendum I suppose with our tradition of having referendums in Ireland, we would, and referendums that are binding, no question about whether it's going to happen or not, like Brexit, that we have a a much stronger tradition of them. There is one issue that came up from some of the litigation around repeal the 8th, the Moretti case, where an individual from Northern Ireland wanted to have a vote in the repeal the 8th um, vote down here. And her, I think it was her main argument was based on the principles of the Good Friday Agreement and the European Convention on Human Rights. And the court said that doesn't give you any right, even though you're an Irish citizen, to have a perspective on a referendum down here. There, there, There's questions over that judgment because I personally would be thinking that uh, the idea of the electorate and the population got conflated. But it would also add into the argument that it would need to be on both the, on the same day, both sides of the border, so that you wouldn't have issues like that coming before the Irish courts in litigation on that issue. But if it was to be a referendum on the on a United Ireland, it would run similar to any referendum that we've had in in Ireland. Thank you very much. Look, we're almost out of time, but um, before we wrap up, just to ask um, Colin uh, and Jennifer, in 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 a in a few sort of headlines, uh, is are there any points which we which we've kind of not been able to touch on, however briefly today, uh, and it's obvious that there is a great deal more uh, to be to be said. I mean, this this conversation could uh, could run and run, and it should run and run. Um, Colin, what what first of all, just to appreciate the opportunity to to, to talk about way way of conclusion. You know, I think. What we're talking about today is a normal aspect of the Good Friday Agreement, the principle of consent, the right to self-determination there. What we're talking about and the work of Aaron's and other people at the moment is is essentially preparing the ground to give people a choice. Like my own view, I hope it's been clear in this discussion, is that we need to move away from this as an abstract discussion. We need to mainstream and normalise it. Uh, we need to plan properly in a well-managed way in advance. We need an agreed and structured approach and outlined the civic role in that, but also the intergovernmental role, also highlighted possible international oversight as well, which is something we, we might need to think about. But ultimately, you know, the, the headline, the end point in all of this is we just need to get on 
with getting ready for these referendums that, in my own view, are likely in the decade ahead. Thank you. Jennifer, any final thoughts on, on your part? Well, first, just to say thank you for inviting me to talk on this. But what I would echo what Colin has said, that, you know, we have enough existential threats from coronavirus variants, everything. You know, it is something that's going to be very emotive for people on both sides of the border because everyone, the vast majority of people have some connection with this going back through their family. And we just need to get on with getting these questions addressed and getting answers to them so people can actually make a choice when it comes to the day when there there will be a vote. It is going to happen at some stage. And as I said in my um, in my response, we have our constitutional homework to do, so we better get on with it. Irish people are well-known last-minute merchants, so let's not leave all these big questions until the very end, but give people the time and the space to consider what this means for them, their families and their communities. Well, thank you very much. And of course, one of the purposes of the Aaron's project is precisely to illuminate you know, not just these constitutional and legal issues, but you know, very many others as well. But there are some of the papers we've already published which are uh, on similar themes by Brendan O'Leary, for example, um, by myself early on about the Good Friday Agreement and the United Ireland. Um, also, the question of the franchise um, which might be used was discussed on a podcast by Chris McCrudden uh, and Oren Doyle and uh, not so so long ago. Um, so uh, there is indeed a great deal more to be talked about um, over the period ahead. And I suppose from a Southern perspective, again, opinion polls tend to show um, that most people in the Republic, um, while they may have a, a broad view of, of principle, uh, have probably devoted very little thought um, to the practicalities or indeed the symbolic issues around the United Ireland and nor have they really had to look at the, the trade-offs and so on which might occur. So I think um, the conversation is very helpful. So thank you both very much indeed, uh, Colin Harvey uh, and Jennifer Kavanagh. Aaron's it's a joint project of the Royal Irish Academy, the premier All-Ireland Scholarly Institution and the Keogh Norton Institute for Irish Studies at the University of Notre Dame's Keogh School of Global Affairs. Its mission is to publish authoritative, independent and non-partisan analysis and research on constitutional, institutional and policy options for Ireland, North and South in a post-Brexit context. Now, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more and read the research in full on this and on all the other articles at aaronsproject.com. And my thanks to everybody for listening to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.